Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is the morning, at least on the Pacific coast, the United States of November the 24th. Uh, we finally have an election winner, at least a presidential election winner, so we don't need to waste our time talking any more about that. We know that there will be a President Biden for sure in January of next year. Uh, but the election threw up a lot of other really interesting issues, particularly on the West Coast about technology. Uh, there was um, uh, a really interesting uh, referendum on Uber and Lyft drivers, whether they'll remain contractors. Uh, which got a lot of uh, uh, got a lot of attention because a lot of people believe that Uber and, and, and Lyft paid to win that part of the election. Uh, but one area that has been less discussed, which in some ways is actually even more interesting than the Uber Lyft thing in in in, in California, is the voting uh, down of Proposition Twenty Five. Uh, uh, the the uh, the issue the bill that um, determined whether or not an algorithm could replace cash bail. Uh, a lot of controversy about this because some people argue that progressives should have been in favour of uh, of this bill, uh, but they actually voted it down. Of course, what it does is raise the issue of AI and the growing automation of life, particularly on the West Coast, uh, where AI, of course, is being driven through Silicon Valley. One guy who has done a lot of thinking about the implications of artificial intelligence on the world is my guest today, Brian Christensen. Uh, he is the author of a really interesting new book, The Alignment Problem. Uh, Brian, what do you make of uh, proposition 25 does it symbolize the great ethical questions of the future i think <clears throat> i think proposition 25 um is a great example of how ethical issues are really coming to a head in in the context of ai and machine learning um, and data science so there is actually a hundred year long history of statistical risk assessment being used in the american criminal justice system going back all the way to the 1920s and 30s. Um, but it has really been in the last 10 to 15 years that we have seen it kind of explode through the American uh, criminal justice system. So at almost every level of, of jurisdiction, um, determinations about whether people are released on parole, whether they are held or released pending trial, um, how their bail is set, um, et cetera, are being made with the use of these algorithmic and statistical tools. And there is really um, this question at the intersection of computer science, ethics, and the law of what does it mean to say of a statistical tool, this tool is fair. You know, we have certain uh, ideas that are articulated in the law, right, about um, 
you know, disparate impact and equality and, and um, you know, protected attributes and things like this. And there's a real question of how does that translate into this mathematical context? And, Brian, um, yeah. your book, the new book, The Alignment Problem, has the subtext machine learning and human values. Let's get definitional. You teach at UC Berkeley, so you're used to defining things. Uh, what is machine learning? Uh, um, uh, and perhaps even more importantly, what is a human value? Hmm. So <laughs> machine learning will be the easier of those two to, to define. Um, so machine learning refers to a subfield of artificial intelligence. And in particular, it is the uh, domain of systems which, rather than being explicitly programmed, are taught essentially by example. Um, so you can think of something like an image recognition system and you say, you know, this is a picture of a dog. That's a picture of a cat. Here's another dog. Here's another cat. And you hope that this system can what's called generalize um, to the point that it can recognize things that it hasn't been explicitly shown before. So let, let me throw in uh, an example of machine learning. Uh, this delightful young woman who isn't really a young woman. She's an algorithm. Right. So this is an example of uh, something called a, a GAN or a generative adversarial network, um, where you essentially have two machine learning systems that are being trained in a kind of tug of war, where one system is being developed to create plausible uh, faces. And then the other side, what's called the discriminator, is being trained to get better and better at determining whether a face is real or fake. And you train these two things together and you end up um, with a system that can produce faces, which even the system itself cannot tell whether they're real or fake. This uh, is the future of reality, uh, uh, one in which I think we're going to be increasingly uh, unable to distinguish between real people like Brian Christian, I hope you're real, Brian, and young women like this or, or young men like this. Uh, Brian, you said that machine learning was easy to define. What about human values? You said that's a trickier one. What is a human value? Yeah, um, I think there are many, many things that we care about, right? So I'm going to, I'll just define that as the things that we care about. Um, some of those things are very explicit, at least to a degree, right? The law articulates certain things um, to, to some degree of, of vagueness or precision. Um, but there are many, many things that I would think of as human values that are much more difficult to define. Um, and I think this is the problem that the field of AI has, right? So if you're um, trying to program, let's say, a self-driving car or even worse, you know, a robot that's going to move around in your house. But let's just start with the car. Um, how do you capture in a sort of rigorous numerical form all the things that we care about are norms? right, about driving the speed limit, except when you don't, or keeping to the right hand of the road, except when you don't, or maintaining a safe following distance, except when you don't. Um, and this is to say nothing about like the even thornier realm of, you know, interpersonal react, uh, interactions and, and so forth. So there is this real question confronting the machine learning community, which is, as we develop these systems that are both on the one hand, more and more capable, um, and on the other hand, more and more pervasive throughout society. Um, how do we instill in them uh, some sense of what it is that we want them to do, what it is we want them not to do, 
what are what are the norms? What are the rules of life? Um, if right. they are, and I, I actually was looking through the internet as as I sometimes do when I'm preparing for these sorts of interviews, and I found an alternative um, uh, an, an alternative title to the line, uh, an, an alternative um, title to the alignment problem was how can machines learn human values, and uh, I assume you nix that subtitle because it's kind of confusing. Can we hmm. separate these machines, which we, of course, create from human values, which are part of us? I mean, I think at some level, um, the, the field of machine learning as a whole is about getting systems to do what we want. Um, the question is, how do we move from a world in which what we want is extremely narrowly defined um, to one in which these systems are um, kind of part part of the world, sharing sharing society with us. Um, and this is broadly the field of what's called AI alignment. Um, typically, the way that machine learning systems are built is you have something called a training set, which is a set of examples, and then something called an objective function, which is a mathematical way of specifying what you want the system to minimize or maximize. Um, and there's this real question of, has the system learned what you think it's learned? Is the system going to behave in the real world the way that you intend for it to behave, the way you expect it to? Um, and there are any number of things that can go wrong. And in some sense, the book is a catalog of these kind of harrowing tales of all the ways that that right. can go wrong. And, and, and uh, it seems like before we get to some of the, the specific ways in which it can go wrong, my sense is you're arguing that we are tiptoeing or sliding or falling in to the age of AI. These systems are becoming increasingly ubiquitous, prevalent, even if we don't even see them ourselves. You you seem to use nine, uh, 20, 15, 16 as, as a kind of watershed of, of, of when the age of AI began. Did something specifically happen or did we just sort of wake up one morning and find ourselves in, uh, in a new zeitgeist? I guess I would say that if, if you had to pinpoint the beginning of the age of AI that we're living in, I would put it around October 2012. So October 2012 was... Um, a system called AlexNet, which was really the first um, deep learning system that was doing computer vision. AlexNet competed at the annual ImageNet competition, which is held among the AI community, and obliterated uh, the rest of the systems. So, I mean, neural networks have been around since literally the 1940s, so there were hardly anything new. But 2012 was the year that, you know, after however many cycles of boom and bust, you know, hype, um, they finally delivered on the the promise that they'd had for 75 whatever years. And so to your question of, of why do we sort of think of 2015, 16 as the, as the beginning of this era, I think that's really when the theoretical rubber hit the road um, that we had seen in an academic context that deep neural networks were just, um, you know, a disc, discontinuous step change from what we had had before. Um, and 2015, 2016 is when that technology started to become widely commercialized. So um, the ethical questions now are, are, uh, are ubiquitous, as you said. I mean, every day, I was just reading The Economist this morning, uh, we now have um, 
fighter aircraft will have AI pilots. Mm. Um, uh, we know about Prop 25 the, in a connected story. The Los Angeles police just banned the use of commercial facial recognition. A lot of the fears, it seems, uh, and, and, um, and Amazon did the same thing when it came to uh, uh, AI recruiting tool that was biased against women. A lot of this stuff seems to touch on our particular concerns in 2020 with discrimination, racial uh, and gender and sexual discrimination. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's one of the main one of the main currents um, in machine learning and sort of ethical as well as safety issues. And I think part of that is, again, going back to the kind of basic framework with which these systems are trained. You have a set of examples um, called the training data. Um, and then you turn turn the system loose and you hope that what it actually encounters in the real world resembles its training data. And so I think one of the first questions that one can ask is, are those training data sufficiently diverse? Do they actually represent the world as it is? Um, and we've seen a number of, I would say, scandals in the AI community. There was, for example, a, a very widely used academic data set of faces called Labeled Faces in the Wild. Um, and the team that put this together, there was no, no ill will whatsoever. But if you're trying to assemble a database of millions of faces, you go to the internet. And so they looked at news articles and they were scraping these faces and the captions of the image that would identify who the people were from you know, the front page of the newspaper. And this was happening towards the end of the 2000s. And so what you end up with is a data set that contains the people that would have appeared on the front page of a newspaper in the late 2000s. So the number one person in that data set, it was then President George W. Bush. In fact, there are twice as many pictures of George W. Bush as there are of all black women combined. Brian, are we worrying about the wrong thing? I mean, obviously, I'm not in favor of... Um lots of pictures of George W. Bush and discrimination against black women, but, um, or discrimination against anyone. But there's a huge amount of money in AI. And this obsession with the fairness of AI systems seems to be a kind of masquerade, if you like, for what's really happening in the industry. Today, it was announced that Elon Musk who I know is a, an associate of yours, someone who's inspired some of your work and has been inspired indeed by your work, has become the world's second richest man, symbolically overtaking Bill Gates, who's the, uh, the, the, the computer guy. Elon Musk, I think, is really the first true multi, uh, AI multi-billionaire. Should we be worrying about who's making money out of this and not where the discrimination in these systems lie? Um, I think there's plenty of room to be worried about uh, many things simultaneously. Um, in terms of the question of who's making the money, I mean, I think... Um, I mean, Tesla is an example, an early example of an AI company. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think there are many different business models. So there is, I think, an intrinsically monopolistic um, thing that happens with data, right? Where you use the data to train the AI. If you have more data, that gives you a competitive advantage. And then you use that competitive advantage to gather more data, right? And so there is kind of a feedback loop where I think naturally these companies 
you know, end up in a sort of a winner take all dynamic, right? So I think there are big questions from a regulatory standpoint, et cetera, of how do we want to attempt to democratize um, technology that has this kind of intrinsically, um, yeah, as I say, winner take all mechanism behind it. Um, Brian, do you think sometimes you tend to idealize AI pioneers? They're just humans like the rest of us. Uh, Marvin Minsky, for example, was an associate of, uh, of Jeffrey Epstein. Um, doesn't mean that all AI pioneers are, are sexual criminals, but it does suggest that these people are, are no different really from any of us. Is that fair? I think that's more than fair. I mean, I think um, for me, one of the one of the great surprises and pleasures of researching this book was getting to delve into the biography of some of the founders in the field. So, for example, neural networks were um, really first thought of in 1942 by uh, Walter Pitts and Warren McCulloch. And I just knew them as names, you know, names in a bibliography. Um, but you start to learn about the history of who these people actually were. It turns out that Walter Pitts was a homeless child prodigy who had run away and was sleeping on the streets in Chicago. Mm. And Warren McCulloch was this middle-aged, esteemed neurologist who basically became a kind of foster father to him. Um, and out of this kind of intergenerational collaboration, when Walter Pitts was living in Warren McCulloch's basement, um, comes the seminal idea, arguably, of, of the deep learning revolution that we have now. So these are fundamentally real people, um, absolutely. And, and their stories book, uh, are fascinating. Your, your book does start wonderfully, I think, with that story. Um, it, your book mostly focuses on the United States. It's where you are, and it's where a lot of the, the most important work in AI is being done. But of course, America, as in all technology and business now, has a rival, a competitor, a China. Uh, a German journalist, Kai Strippmatter, was uh, on um, my show a couple of months ago talking about the Chinese surveillance state. How fearful are you of the Chinese model? becoming a, a, a digitalized, updated, more efficient version of Orwell's 1984. Yeah, I, I had seen something in the paper um, quoting one of the government officials from China saying something, something to the effect of, um, you know, communism, this idea of central, centralized government, centralized planning. Um, perhaps we can chalk up some of its 20th century failures to just a, a lack of computational power, that maybe it is really in the 21st century that that kind of ideal or that kind of dream is finally realizable uh, because now we have AI and we, we can um, you know plan the economy centrally through AI and things like this and surveil everyone through AI and things like that. Um, I do think there is a lot to be concerned about in terms of um, you know the expression that people in the AI safety community use is turnkey totalitarianism, um, that there are many examples throughout human history of, um, you know, human systems in which the individual human members kind of don't, don't want to go along with the program, right? They're, the world has been saved on at least one occasion by, uh, you know, Soviet missile operators refusing to, you know, pick up the telephone and order a launch when they protocol says they need to, right? So AI is not going to hesitate in that. And way. we have another word for that or another 
three words for that, uh, I think, uh, in, 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 in the literary tradition, at least, Brave New World. Um, Aldous Huxley's famous critique of, of science. Uh, you quote Huxley from here, from a, something he said in 1937, Huxley, of course, being the author of Brave New World. It's a, he writes, it's become apparent that what triumphant science has done hitherto is to, is to improve the means for achieving unimproved or actually deteriorated ends. Do you think that's as true today in 2020 as it was in 1937? I think it's probably more true today. Um, there, uh, there is that famous line, you know, uh, referencing Allen Ginsberg's howl, where uh, I think it was a Facebook employee said, the best minds of my generation are stuck worrying about how to make people click on ads. Um, and I think, you know, I was talking um, with uh, the economist Sendhil Malanathan uh, from University of Chicago, and, and he made the point that the AI that's used for healthcare, the AI that's used in the government is decidedly, you know, second rate. Um, in comparison with, you know, when, when someone gets home from the hospital, let's say, they turn on their computer and the algorithms that Netflix is using to, you know, suggest what show they should watch next. Like this, this is where the, um, you know, the, the, the greater share of our technological know-how and our, our um, you know, brain power is going. There's something, I think, decidedly inverted about our priorities if you look at it from that perspective so what brian, machine learning is actually doing right brian we should be doing more teaching you quote at the end of the book uh you 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 quote at the end of the book uh sorry about this uh, uh you quote at the end of the book um alan turing the father really in many ways of artificial intelligence uh the course, the man who inspired the Turing test, which was the subject of your first book. Uh, you quote Turing, you said, it's quite true that when a child is being taught, his parents and teachers are repeatedly intervening to stop him doing this or encouraging to do that. But this will not be any the less so when one is trying to teach a machine. I have made some experiments in teaching a machine to do some simple operation, and a very great deal of such intervention was needed before I could get any result at all. In other words, the machine learned so slowly that it needed a great deal of teaching. Are you suggesting that we need to go back to teaching that AI, that, that people assume that AI, we won't have to do anything, that there'll be these smart machines doing all our dirty work, but actually the AI revolution represents an even greater challenge to the human condition and, and human ability to teach one another and pass down wisdom? I, th I mean, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, you, I think the analogy of parenthood is really apt in thinking about AI. Um, and indeed, you know, one, one of the things I note in the book is that there's an increasing dialogue between AI researchers and uh, child psychologists um, because these two fields are literally on a collision course. But I think, you know, more philosophically, um, teaching is often an opportunity to learn, right? So, um, I think almost everyone has had that experience of you don't really know something until you teach it or as you're teaching someone how to do something you're simultaneously realizing oh yeah that is why i think this way or this is how one does this thing and i think ai provides us at you know at its best with exactly that kind of opportunity that as we prepare to kind of 
hand hand the reins over to um, these systems in in ways large and small, um, we really have an opportunity to learn something about ourselves um, and what the things are that we value. I think that's a big opportunity. Some people might be chilled with this idea of handing the reins over, Brian. They might raise the specter of Blade Runner, the idea of living in a world where we can't distinguish between humans and, and machines. How can you be sure that I'm not a machine? <laughs> well, this is, the, of course, the Turing test. This goes all the way back to the beginning of the field. Well, could I be a machine? Could I? Do we have the technology now to, to make me into a machine and turn this conversation into a machine? What we have now, I mean, we're seeing with so-called deep fakes, right? So someone, it could be the case right, that I'm not talking to you, right? They, these seem pretty real. This conversation seems pretty real. Could it be a fake? It could. It could. It's totally possible for someone to have enough um, photographs of you and samples of your voice um, that they can create essentially a live simulacrum uh, of uh, Andrew Keane. That, uh, uh, and uh, regular viewers of this show know that I always say the same thing anyway. What about you, Brian? How can I be convinced that you're not a machine? Prove it. Well, this is this is the Turing test, right? This is what um, Alan Turing said. The, the answer was language, um, that, that this is what we use in human life. You know, there is this question of, uh, you know, for anyone who studied theory of mind and philosophy, you know, this question of solipsism. Am I the only conscious person or is, every, you know, am I in some kind of uh, philosophical Truman show or are other people just as conscious having just as much an inner life as I am? How do we know? And Turing said, well, you know, just as a practical matter, we talk to people. Um, we, we exchange ideas. We look for uh, ways to invite them to think on their feet, in, invite them to surprise us with the things that they say. Um, and in some ways, uh, the, it is the art of conversation which takes uh, this, this central this, role. This act itself is a form of defiance or a challenge to AI, something that reminds us of what being human is. Is that fair? I completely agree. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think call this show the machineless show. Brian Christian, you're a good sport and an excellent writer and thinker. Uh, I strongly urge people who are interested in this very, very important subject to read your new book, The Alignment Problem, which is, of course, about the alignment problem of machine learning and human values in increasingly an AI dominated world. Brian, uh, you're in San Francisco at the moment in November 20, strange times, stuck inside just over the bay from me. What else should people be reading? There's a book from the 1980s, which is one of my favorite books. Um, and I think it doesn't get nearly enough attention. It's called Finite and Infinite Games by James Kars. Um, and he, uh, it's, it's a, a very unusual book. He's a professor of religion at NYU. And he wrote the book after attending a game theory con uh, conference. And so he's really asking these uh, deeply philosophical questions about how, in what way can you think of human life as a game? And he defines uh, two different categories of game, finite and infinite, and goes on to kind of parse everything in human life from medicine to politics to sex etc through this lens of are you playing a finite game or an infinite game and i think it's uh and then it's become sort of a permanent part of uh the way that i make sense of, of the world around me so i t highly encourage people to read that if they're interested you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key 
Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.